The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk on 92.7 and 106 FM. Well, here we are again. The Money Show brought to you by ABSA CIB. Driving action-led insights that create impact when actioned with collaboration through the Insights series. APSA is a registered FSP. Well, there's promising signals coming through in American inflation. The PCE number should get away a prize for anybody who gets the PCE. Personal consumption expenditure. And that's the number that the US Fed likes to look at when it's gauging whether it's winning the battle of inflation. It's come up with a good number. I'll test it against banker Alan Pullinger this evening, the chief executive at First Rand. Uh, also, anything you want to talk about this evening you give us a shout on 011-8830702 or 021-446-0567 you can uh, send us a whatsapp voice note also to 072-702-1702 the money show with bruce whitfield on 702 702 here's a curious question for you how many chief executives has transnet had in the past 23 years Try and name them. <laughs> can name like Brian Mulefe and Bosha Darby, and there was Siabonga Gama. There were some before and some since. How many? Uh, I'd looked at the banking sector, for example. Nedbank during that time has had three. First Rand's had four. Apsis on five. Standard Bank's on two. Truworth has had only one CEO during that time. Been um, there for about 35 years, I think. Transnet is on chief executive number eight with the confirmation that Michelle Phillips, of course, appointed. Uh, and the reaction to her appointment has actually, I think, been overwhelmingly positive. Just huge relief that you're going to have somebody who has displayed enormous integrity, I'm sure, under huge pressure over a considerable period of time, who is also capable and understands the job that has to be done. So we watch this space. You're with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. Alan Pullinger is the chief executive of First Rand, and it's quite encouraging to see that American personal consumption expenditure number come out at 2.4%, which is in line with expectations. And it does suggest, Alan Pullinger, that perhaps this nightmare of higher for longer interest rates is higher, but not for too much longer, at least not in the U.S., Hey, Bruce, good to chat. Um, yeah, I think you're right there. Uh, I suppose it matters for us because, you know, the Saab is, is, is certainly not going to start cutting interest rates, I think, before we see the Fed and Bank of England start cutting. You know, I, I, don't, think we'll, I don't think we'll move before them. So, yeah, I suppose we are all sort of Fed watching and anything that says inflation's under control and, uh, uh, you know, is, is hopefully going to get us closer to that point. And also just a little bit better for the currency. Things improve on that particular front. That takes some of the heat off our own inflation number, which on our last check, I think, was sitting at 5.3%. We still do have uh, a relatively high inflation rate compared to where we would like to be. Are, and, and in response to that, the Reserve Bank, of course, has raised interest rates quite quickly and quite significantly. Are those interest rate increases hurting? Yeah, they 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 certainly restrictive. So I think that's the word uh, that the central bank uses, and and there's no doubt it it's, it is restrictive. 
I suppose from a, a bank perspective, you know, one of the things we look at is, you know, are we starting to see payment strain? Um, so in our retail portfolios or, you know, all of the unsecured lending, personal loans, overdrafts, credit cards, even some of the mortgage lending that we do here, some of the vehicle finance, are we starting to see payment strain? So what is that? And, and there I'm referring to, do we see customers missing one month, then then make up a month, then, then miss a month and then a second month? And so it's only when you... It's only when you've kind of, you, you know you deep into that do you get moved into to non-performing loans. But this this these early signals, we are definitely seeing, and and I think it's the combination of what you've said. It's interest rates and inflation. Yeah, and it's hurting. I mean, you you make more money when interest rates are higher from the, the what you earn on interest on your own capital, of course. Uh, but at the same time, it's starting to see um, the the non-performing loans tick up and the provisions you have to take in case there is a a catastrophe. But it does feel like this interest rate cycle has been weathered, perhaps considerably better than anyone might have hoped for when it began two years ago. Yeah, certainly for us. I mean, uh, you know, we. We knew we were, 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 I guess, going into the cycle, you know, well provided, good provisions. Uh, I think we had been judicious around lending, so all of those things were good. We we still had an expectation of a, of, of credit losses being higher than what they've printed now. So I think to your point, uh, it turned out better than we expected. But I, I, I do think we must just be mindful here, Bruce. You know, we've, we've probably still got a tough winter ahead of us. Um, no interest rates. Uh, we're probably going to sit with, with, with low shedding. Uh, you know, I think yeah. we're looking at a fuel price increase, uh, you know, at, at, at the petrol pump next week. So there's still pockets of inflation, which I think are still hurting. So we've got to get, we're going to have to get through winter. You know, perhaps we get to September, October, and and uh, the governor can get, uh, surprise us with uh, a spring, you know, a little spring surprise <laughs> and, and some interest rate cuts. But I think it's a good observation, though, that even though rates are looking like they'll start coming down in the middle of the year in many parts of the world, we're not in one of those many parts of the world. Our circumstances are different. The weak currency environment, the breakdowns at Transnet, the high inflation, the high rates, the power cuts, the fact that, there, there are just so many things that are broken that push up the cost of everything in the economy um, that the, the inflationary pressures do remain. But you are, I mean, again, there are elements of your customer base taking strain, uh, but there are, you're extending loans. You are seeing a rise in deposits. There is certainly a, a very clear element of resilience in the economy. Yes, you're 100% right. So, you know, when, when we look at group loans up uh, 11%, so we're very pleased with that. But your question says, okay, let's break that 11% down. And and you're seeing only 7% into retail. You're seeing 10% growth coming from uh, F&B commercial, so your smaller and mid-sized business. And then you're seeing 14% coming in, in, in the, 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 the customer set that R&B looks after, that large corporate. So absolutely. I mean, the growth really is in the in the business area, and and it's your consumer, which I think is is under pressure here. Alan Pullinger, the chief executive at First Rand, thank you very much for joining us, Alan, this evening here on the Money Show. In a moment, the chief executive of Suntum, they've also had actually a very good year. Um, Suntum uh, is the short-term insurer, which is mostly owned by Sun Lum, which in turn came out with an announcement today, um, talking about the fact that its performance is going to be better. Uh, the chief financial officer at Suntum joins us this evening. So.
surprise, surprise, the chief executive is otherwise engaged, it would turn out. Uh, Vikas Wellifir is the chief, exe- uh, the chief financial officer at Santa, seeing a 64% jump in net profit, more than 3 billion rand. Headline earnings per share up 27%. Dividend up nicely as well. But something unusual in these results, and I've never seen it to this extent, Vikas, something of a spring clean, and it's a big spring clean of a billion rand in premium income. You've said to customers, terribly sorry, but we can't have you as customers anymore, and you've, you've lost a billion rand in premium income. It's a big move. Is it common practice, or is this quite unusual? Uh, good afternoon. Good afternoon to, the, to your listeners as well. Yes, it is a big move, um, but it's in line with um, our philosophy to focus on profitable business. So we strongly drive our return on capital targets, um, and where we come across pockets of business where we feel we can't earn our um, return over the longer term, then, then we need to, to cut that business. Um, and that's in total about $1.3 billion, um, across uh, the full portfolio, both in South Africa and also outside of South Africa. Uh, is it predominantly in or out of South Africa? Because you, you have had some troublesome outside of South Africa businesses, I think, over the last year or so. Yes, the majority of it um, is in South Africa, um, but also quite a sizable portion internationally as well, in particular with our reinsurance business, Santa Marie. And that Santa Marie, of course, got stung by the massive earthquakes in Turkey. And, um, you know, you, you kind of accept, expect it to stump up uh, for other people's disasters as well, because there's a global reinsurance industry, basically insuring the insurers against uh, big disasters that could break them in their domestic markets when things go really haywire. Yes, so we participate also in the reinsurance market through Santa Marie, but um, we don't take the large exposures that uh, the big international players um, take. So we typically, our philosophy is to, to take very small follow, follow lines. Um, and normally, um, through the diversification within our portfolio, you won't see the kind of sizable losses that we saw in, in Turkey. Um, this year. Talk to me about the decision-making process. When you're looking at a book of insurance and you do multi-billion rounds worth of premium income each and every single year, how do you decide what to cut and what to keep in? Because is it like after five years of higher than average claims or is it people who are missing out on their insurance payments? What is it that defines the decision of cutting loose customers from whom you're not likely to make a long-term return? Yeah, so one of the um, key indicators we um, look at is the long-term um, trend and claims experience trend. Um, but then cutting business is really the last resort. Um, so we also look at alternatives, for example, increasing premiums, working with the client to, to better manage the, the risk that if they've got attached to, to their properties, especially for fires, for example. Um, and only when we reach that point where we say between better risk management and pricing, we actually can't get that business profitable over the longer term is when we, we decide to rather exit um, the, the agreement. Uh, and uh, in, in an environment where claims are going up, I mean, claims were slightly higher this last year than the year before, a combination of Western Cape floods and ha- hailstorms in Gauteng and the Santam claims there as well. It does seem to have been a calmer year in some respects, despite the Western Cape fires and others. Uh, do you kind of think, that, are things leveling out a little bit? 
Um, not necessarily. So I think we, we are living through a period of increased risk, especially from a um, weather-related claims perspective. Um, I think the two areas that we have successfully addressed, which was particular problem areas last year, was the motor book, where we experienced high claims inflation, and that's been successfully addressed. And then, of course, the, the losses from power surge claims, which has also been mitigated. Um, the, the area that's still problematic for us is the property book, um, and that's where we've been hit by the, the weather-related claims and then fire losses. Um, and we've definitely did see an increase in the number and the size of fire losses um, in the commercial book. Um, and that's a specific area of attention for us for this year to um, to attend to. In the insurance world, it is all about underwriting profit. It is all about the margin that you can earn. And what's interesting about this, and this suggests that you've got a pricing problem for the risk that you're taking on, um, you want to keep your sort of margin between 5 and 10%. At one stage, I think before COVID, it was over 7%. It was certainly a very good um, a, a very good margin. It's now down to 3.5% for 2023. It's down quite substantially from 2022 and it does suggest that uh, consumers of an, of in, of uh, of insurance products may be getting some fairly nasty surprises when it comes to premium increases in the not too distant future. Yeah, if you um, if I look at the the claims that caused that the drop in our writing margin, a lot of it's sitting within the, the fire losses um, that I mentioned. Um, so that's not across the board. That's that's across specific corporates. Um, where we need to, to look at the exposures that, we, that we've got. Um, and then this year was a particularly bad year from a weather-related perspective. Um, between the Western Cape floods, the early November, and uh, the loss in Turkey of $150 million, um, that alone cost us 2.5% um, in margin. And then uh, the loss-making business that we've cancelled, that was another 1.4% in margin that's now out of the, the system. So that, in theory, automatically should lift our margin by 1.4% on its own into the, into the next year. And then we, we do feel there is a number of actions that we can take to address the, the property booking, but take particularly the fire, fire losses, um, which should bring us then back within the, the 5 to 10% range. Um, we are very confident that... Uh, the business is geared to deliver within that target range and then it's still appropriate for us. So no, no no, nasty sort of surprises in terms of premium increases lurking in the background then? I think for some of the um, property exposures, um, definitely where we've seen large claims, um, all of the, the property book is not appropriately priced at this stage where we will need to look at um, um, potentially sizable premium increases. Um, but it's not across the board. It's really a segmented approach looking at it per client um, perspective. And in a world that's increasingly uncertain, of course, there's was elections that make people very nervous about responses to outcomes. Uh, there is always the issue of climate change. I mean, the, the issue of insurance is becoming, I think, increasingly complex and very, very difficult to, to measure in anticipation of a future we can't forecast accurately. Um, you're spot on there. So um, we're living in a much more volatile world, um, and that is something that we we need to address constantly. And also adapting our pro- product offerings, the solutions we offer to clients, um, and then and constantly also changing our risk management um, actions and and pricing, of course, in line with with a changing world. 
Vikaswali Fir, the Chief Financial Officer at Suntam. Thank you for joining us this evening. The Money Show. The Markets. Portfolio Manager at AdviceWorks, Rudy van der Merwe, is with us this evening. And we've got quite an interesting array of results today. And I'm looking for a quick sort of thought on each one of them. And maybe we can tie them all up in a nice, neat bow at the end, Rudy. Uh, A quick view on the financial sector, of course. And today it was the turn of First Rand and Suntum. I think credible results from from both sets of companies. Results, I think, the, the quality of First Rand's results was was the winner there. Um, they've been quite quite careful about the way they extend loans and, and uh, enhancing the quality of those loans. So not super exciting results, but seemingly very very good quality results. Uh, even though there is pressure on on bad debts, the, the credit loss ratio is is only very very marginally elevated. Uh, and I think they're very well positioned for for the current environment, which is which is quite an uncertain one. Um, Suntum, as you mentioned just now, you know, a little bit more uncertain. The, the, uh, we seem to be getting un- adverse weather-related claims on on a relatively regular basis from uh, from their base at the moment, and, and that is obviously biting them. The bulk of their their improvement in earnings actually seems to have come from from investment returns rather than anything else. Um, so, so of the two sets of results, certainly first trend looks looks to be the better quality for now. Uh, and what about Truebirds? I mean, Truebirds, which is of course one of South Africa's premium clothing retailers, uh, understandable, I suppose, that there's less and less money available in the consumer market to go shopping, um, and they will have some some bad debts creeping in as people struggle to pay their bills, uh, and a very modest below inflation profit uh, profit growth coming out of Truebirds, and that's also a very good indicator, I guess, of the the real state of the South African consumer. Yeah, it is a good measuring measuring stick for for what's going on in the the economy. Their sales are up sort of eight and a half percent, but headline earnings uh, in the region of sort of three point six percent. So, so really not not exciting numbers. It means that there clearly is some some margin pressure there. Uh, and if one looks through to the you know where those sales come from, uh, the bulk of their divisions actually produced negative sales growth, and and the the real growth rate came from. From office, you know, the office business in the UK doing very well. Sales in pound terms, they were up 15.6 odd percent, and in rand terms, that translated to about 33 percent, and then that's where where really the growth for for Truus came from, um, being bailed out partly by currency and by, by a performing division in the UK. It's really nice, a nice change, really, isn't it, to see a South African retailer that made an expensive acquisition getting rewarded finally. Um, for for one of those acquisitions, Spur Corporation. This is the the company that owns Spur and Rockamamas and all the bits. We'll chat to the chief executive of Spur in just a bit. I mean, just the, the amount of money that Spur is having to spend just to keep the doors open on basic things like water and electricity and gas and all of that sort of stuff is mind boggling here, Rudy. And is uh, but yet they've produced a decent set of results under under very trying circumstances. Uh, earnings per share up sixteen odd percent, um, which is uh, I think a very credible return. As you say, the cost pressures on them are, are significant. You know they're getting getting bitten by things like electricity prices, but having to create alternatives for for the lack of of, of access to to electricity. I think they're also benefiting from a little bit of a trend. There seems to be a greater proportion of people's available spend that is going to fast food. And I think that's also a consequence, partly at least, of, of load shedding. You know, the, the fact that 
someone's oven is not working, that often means that they end up stopping by and getting a, a burger somewhere where, where there is electricity. So so that, I think, is, is bailing spur up, but they've managed their, their costs very well, and, and I think it's a very critical credible uh, outcome under quite trying circumstances. Yeah, and then um, AB InBev, I keep wanting to call it SAB Miller, of course, because it bought SAB Miller. AB InBev, share price down on the day in, I think, a globally, a tough beer market. And Anna's a bush which massively overpaid for the benefit of SAB Miller shareholders who held firm on their price. I would think it was £46 a share, £100 billion for SAB Miller. I think they're still sort of trying to get back to the level they paid for SAB, aren't they? Yeah, Bruce, it's, uh, it has been a very, very tough period for them. I was actually looking at the, the longer-term graph of the, the share price. Uh, Nine-odd years ago, it was 1,800 rand. It's now 1,178-odd rand. So it's down 40% in, in nine years. Um, and they do keep producing... Uh, very, very dull and lackluster result. Uh, you know, they seem to have endless promise, but it, it never seems to come to fruition. Um, and it's another year of that. Uh, sales were up in the region of the middle single digits, around 6 or 7%. Um, and earnings were, for all intents and purposes, flat. They're struggling in the, in the U.S., and they have been, been hurt by some currency movements. Um, but, uh, yeah, effectively, earnings growth is... is is, is largely non-existent, uh, and they're not not getting a great deal of traction at the moment. I think there is a lot of of margin pressure. Obviously, costs are, are difficult to pass through to their sort of consumer base, um, but it does seem to me to be quite an unexciting prospect and and very expensively priced for the amount of growth you're getting. Rudy Fanamarva, as always, thank you very much indeed. Rudy Fanamarva is a portfolio manager at AdviceWorks. We're going to talk to the boss of the South African subsidiary of AB InBev, Richard Rivet Karnak, this evening, um, just to get a sense of how the local beer market is doing. We saw recently how Heineken wrote down the value of its business in South Africa. That's across the beer business of Heineken, but also um, the spirits and cider business of Distel. And then um, the Murray and Roberts. Remember Murray and Roberts? Once mighty Murray and Roberts. Uh, the, uh, the share price of Murray and Roberts, I mean, has just been disastrous for, for, for a very, very long time. Further declines being forecast today. Headline loss per share. Very significant coming through for uh, for Marion Roberts, one of the survivors of the great fallout post World Cup 2010 fallout. We spoke incidentally to the chief executive of Avengers, dramatically re-engineered his business. You can find that podcast available on our website or on your favorite podcast app. Coming up for Eyewitness News now at half past six. Bruce Whitfield on the Money Show, six to eight p.m. I wonder what it is. Maybe it's technology. Maybe there is just so much excess in the world that a handful of people are super rich and there's this contestation. It's not, it's an unconscious contestation for who is the richest person in the world. But if you look over the last, I don't know, 100 years or so, if you go back to 1900, the period in which individuals remained the richest person in the world went for decades. The last decade has seen 
a bit of Elon Musk and a little bit of Bernard Arnault, the uh, CEO of LVMH, and a bit of Jeff Bezos and a bit of Bill Gates and a bit of even Carlos Slim, the telecoms billionaire from Mexico, was there for a while. But if you go back to 1900, Andrew Carnegie was the richest guy in the world from 1900 to 1909. Then Rockefeller um, held the sort of, I suppose, the title, if you like, uh, for 19 years. And then Henry Ford for a decade during... World War II and John Paul Getty for 29 years. There was even a Japanese guy called Yoshiaki Tsutsumi, and I don't even remember Yoshiaki Tsutsumi. It was between 1980 and 1990 during that great Japanese boom, of course, which then ended so dramatically in the 1980s. And they've only recently, in the last couple of weeks, seen a recovery in the value of shares. Then retailer Sam Walton for five years, and this is where the terms get a little bit shorter. Warren Buffett, regarded, of course, as the world's greatest investor, has been the world's richest man only in 2008, as it turns out, the year the world fell apart. And uh, Warren Buffett held the, t- took over as world's richest person from his bestie Bill Gates and broke his winning streak. Uh, and then Bill Gates came back. He's been back two or three times. But yeah, top three in the world. Bernard Arnault of LVMH, luxury goods and booze. Elon Musk, a little bit of everything. Jeff Bezos at Amazon. Uh, and Jeff Bezos at Amazon was the chief, was the richest person in the world for about three years. But certainly the, the duration of the time that the world's richest people spend at the top has most certainly shortened. Um, and I think it's got to be a sign of a more vibrant economy, hasn't it? In terms of new sectors, new dynamism. The old industrial guys, I mean, when they had their gains for, their, for, for decades on end, it just means there wasn't much competition. I mean, that's, that's my assessment of it. You may have a better take on it than I. Give us a call this evening or just drop us a voice note. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. One of the biggest problems facing national franchise businesses like Spur Corporation, which not only runs that chain, but also Rocket Mamas and John Dory and Panerottis, is that they're not just in metropolitan areas, which are generally better run than small towns. There's some fantastically run small towns where citizens have decided to take over. But they've got a big footprint in dysfunctional municipalities where services have collapsed. And Val Nikas is the chief executive at Spur Corporation. And I see a third of your outlets, Val, one third of all of the Spur Corporation outlets in the country are having to make alternative plans, not to get electricity, but to get just water. How are they doing it? Are they having to drill boreholes? Are they bringing in buckets? How is it working? Um, Hi, Bruce. Um, Yes, um, no, no, they're not uh, drilling boreholes. But what they are doing is putting up uh, Jojo tanks Um, And obviously it's limited to certain restaurants because not everyone has got the space or capacity to house those big tanks units. Um, But uh, yes, uh, in some areas, absolutely franchisees have invested in them. Um, In fact, um, I think the number of stores doubled in the last eight months um, in terms of acquiring additional reserves for water. Um, But it's not easy for everyone because a lot of our restaurants trade in malls, um, trade in sort of limited spaces. So it's not going to be as easy as installing the generators or inverters. Um, but let's see. Let's see how the future unfolds when it comes to water reserves. Are the signals encouraging, though? I mean, I, I barely think so. I suppose so much depends on who wins elections and what the sort of intention is and the ability to act on on the failure of municipalities. 
Yes, yeah, let's see. I think we're all waiting to see how things unfold. Um, but I'm sure at some stage there has to be a correction because um, people are going to struggle if it, if it doesn't get fixed at some stage. Yeah. But I think we all got to try and get involved as much as we can and do our bit. But let's see. Most certainly. I mean, it's, it's a really tough environment. And, uh, you know, there, there's some encouraging signs from a Spur Corporation point of view of a recovery and profitability. And things look considerably healthier than perhaps they did uh, 12 months ago. Is that also a signal that things are improving in terms of your franchisees? Are they also um, achieving the benefits or are they so busy spending money just trying to survive that they're not feeling the, the benefit of what looks like a bit of a recovery? Um, Bruce, look, I think um, in any retail business uh, such as ours, um, you know, there's nothing better than positive sales. Um, but the reality is uh, the sales have been erratic. So, you know, the first half of our reporting uh, period was good. And then we did see a bit of a drop off in foot count over October, November. But yes, our franchisees are pleased, especially because we had a, a very good season. Um, it came late in the in the month. Um, you know, the beginning of the month, we thought, oh, are we going to get through December? But pleasingly, um, customers did flow into the restaurants. And yes, when when we get a performance like that, franchisees are definitely happy. Um, but that's needed for them because they've had to incur a lot of additional costs over the last 18 months to two years um, for things like alternative power, energy costs, uh, increased uh, transport costs, etc. So, um, so yes, a very welcome by our franchisees. But obviously, it's not every single restaurant that's performing well. Overall, the group has done well, and we've had some record-breaking uh, sites. And then there are still a handful of restaurants where we're having to support and advise and offer additional marketing support or concessions on some ca- in some cases. Um, yes, but a happy franchisee is a happy franchisor. Absolutely. Are you seeing the diversification of the portfolio, the increased diversification of the portfolio? For a long time, Spur was Spur, and then there was a bit of Panerottis, there was a bit of John Dory, there was a um, a, a little bit of, uh, I forget what the other one is, uh, but um, and subsequently Rock then Rockamama's has come into the fold more recently, and then, of course, you finalised last year the deal, the Doppio Group, Doppio Zero, Pizza Vino, Modern Tailors, which I think may have two outlets by now, but it was yes. got, got huge potential as well. Well, is diversification paying? Is is it is it working for the group? Um, yes. Look, I think we've got a good balance. We've got a ten brands now, and I think other than the three uh, pizza brands, which is Panerotti's. Pizza Vino and Casabella, they all play in a different category. Um, obviously, Spur being the foundation brand and the mother brand that contributes. of the turnover and profit. Um, So that still remains our mothership. Um, But uh, yes, we've got a nice balance in in various categories. So, you know, seafood, you know, we've got the fast casual in Rockamamas and the burger category, uh, Doppia Zero, a bit more of the breakfast. So a nice mix for now. And I think it's now time to consolidate and leverage um, the return on all the brands and ensure that they're all healthy and moving forward. Um, so I think Spurs, a good solid brand and has shown a good steady performance. Panerotti's is doing exceptionally well at the moment. Uh, Rockamamas obviously went through difficulty after COVID with a high incidence of takeaways uh, for that group and still 
in some sites still challenged with the reliance of the third-party aggregators. Um, John Dory's uh, has opened a lot of stores over the last period, so we're hoping in the second half we're going to see nice traction from that brand. And then obviously with our newly acquired portfolio of uh, the Dapia collection, also great brands. I mean, the Dapia Zero brands got a lot of brand equity yeah. in the markets where it operates. So a nice mix for now. Yeah. Uh, but certainly food inflation must be wreaking havoc. I mean, just every single, you just go to the supermarket, you feel it everywhere. There's no sort of sense of a let up. Are you feeling whether or not there, there is a decline in food inflation? Because in the olden days, of course, of Spurn, you'll remember this well, you know, you've got a wooden menu and the wooden menu felt like it was in place for at least a year. And the wooden, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, That's a good point. You know, Maybe that's not a change to paper. No, exactly. But I mean, you almost need like one of those old-fashioned etch-a-sketches so you can change the prices on a daily basis nowadays, isn't it? Yeah, that's incredible. Actually, talking about that, and I'll come back to the food inflation, is um, in the in the African market in certain countries, uh, we reprint the menus because of the regular currency fluctuation. So you can't do it always. If they know it's going to be more long-term, they, they have to change the prices, otherwise you're not going to make any money. But um, yes, on, on the food inflation, um, yes, it has come down marginally. You know, in July last year, we were at 10% to sort of move to 8.8. I think the average for the last six months is about 8.8. And But January, it showed a bit of an improvement. I think um, stats say reported it at 7%. But obviously, you can't transfer that kind of inflation yeah. to your menu. Um, so menu inflation or menu increases were much lower than that. Uh, but yes, and it's in interesting categories. So, you know, when you look at milk, eggs and cheese, that average is up 13%. If you look at vegetables, uh, which I always find interesting, but it could be because of the rainfall, at 19% food inflation. So um, I think it's been a bit erratic, um, but it has it has come gradually down. Yeah, it has. Valnikas. Yeah, but it's still high. Thanks for the chat. Valnikas, Chief Executive at Spur Corporation. 702. Bruce is on The Money Show. Well, we heard from Rudy van der Merwe that AB InBev is struggling to make headway around the world. I wonder how the once mighty SAB Miller would have done differently had it still been in existence. Of course, the core of SAB Miller was the South African breweries business today, still run by Boris Rivet Karnak, chief executive at SAB in South Africa, which is your biggest selling beer brand in South Africa at the moment, Boris. Hi, Bruce. Good to speak to you. Uh, it's calling Black Label. Uh, uh, it always has it's been. It hasn't. It always has been, hasn't it? I mean, Castle threatened it for a while, I think, but calling has always been like the stalwart of the, ever since it was introduced, I think, probably in the 70s. No, so, Bruce, interestingly, we, uh, Castle has been our biggest brand uh, in the past, as has Lion Lager, yeah. uh, as has Hansa Pilsner. So, they they do move around, but Black Label is, is currently by far our biggest brand. Is it the way in which you market and brand and push the brands, or is it something different that leads to that demand? No, I think it's very much uh, driven by by marketing. If you look at Carling Black Label uh, at, at the moment, uh, it's had a very clear positioning uh, for a very long time. Uh, it, it's involved with football, the Carling Cup. It has some very big platforms. We call them mega platforms, which it supported for a very long time. And I think consumers 
I love the liquid. It's award-winning, uh, and and the re- the positioning really resonates. And what about the the, the Anheuser Busch brands? What about the Coronas and the Stellas? And dare I mention Budweiser? Uh, yeah, I'll speak about Corona and Stella. Uh, they <laughs> they're both doing very very well. We actually very pleased. We announced today, and as part of our announcement um, on the overall results of the group, uh, that that combined Stella. Uh, and Corona grew 30% uh, last year. So uh, both those brands obviously play in the premium segment uh, and and both are doing very well for, for different reasons with, with consumers. Have you given up on Budweiser in this market? Not entirely, Bruce, but uh, yeah, it certainly wasn't the success we wanted it to be. So uh, our focus and time and investment is much more uh, towards Stella and Corona now. I mean, throughout the history of both, I'm sure, AB InBev, but certainly SAB Miller, when it was SAB Miller, was you would go into challenging markets and you would arrive and there wouldn't be enough barley. So you'd start a barley industry. The water would be horrible. So you'd start water purification industries. All of that sort of stuff over many, many, many decades, of course. What I love about the corona phenomenon in South Africa is how it's created the necessity to grow your own limes. And I mean, or at least to fund the production of limes because a corona without a Lime is just a corona. Um, and, and it's just the, the, this wonderful continuation of, you know, if the market isn't ready for you, well, you better create the market and, and ensure that it can deliver the brand promise. Yeah, that's right, Bruce. I mean, I'm not sure if you've seen, we put out a video of a project we did it, uh, yeah. up in Hood Sprite with the Molotili community, which is an amazing story. I mean, we donated 19 million rand for equipment to that community, which owns a lot of land. Um, and they now have the biggest lime farm by miles in, in South Africa. Uh, and have, we've worked out together how, how they can produce limes uh, continuously through the year by, by adding water or taking water away at the right time uh, because limes normally only produce for about four months of the year. So, yeah, absolutely, a huge shortage of limes. But um, like the hop farms in George, which we established, uh, we, we knew we had to set up a lime farm and... Unfortunately, there was a community there that, that's benefited from that. Uh, you are seeming to ride the three horsemen of the South African economic apocalypse at the, at the moment, power, water, distribution. Um, I guess it's just a continuous process of navigation around the obstacles that are cast in your way. Yeah, that's right, Bruce. It's tough, right? It's the, the economy is tough. Uh, the operating environment is tough. Uh, I, I was listening uh, uh, to... Uh, the Spursy are talking about uh, the lack of water. We've had that problem in our breweries, in several breweries over the last year, uh, where, where you just don't get water, and obviously without water you can't brew beer. Uh, power has been an ongoing problem for a very long time, dealing with multiple municipalities. It's The operating environment is tough, but you, it is what it is, and you have to roll up your sleeves and get involved and, and find solutions uh, uh, with the municipalities and with government and um, obviously invest money as well to, to protect your business, but, but it's obviously worthwhile doing that. Boris Rivet karnak thank you for joining us this evening, Chief Executive at South African Breweries. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk. On 92.7 and 106 FM. The Money Show brought to you by APSA CIB, driving ActionNet insights that create impact when actioned with collaboration through the Insights Series. APSA is a registered FSP. In a moment, we're going to talk to Mike Alec Kearney. Mike Alec Kearney is uh, the uh, boss 
at a business called CubeSpace. CubeSpace does very interesting things. We'll uh, uh, talk to Mike in just a moment. This is no laughing matter, but I laughed out like a lunatic in just a moment ago. Somebody drew my attention to an advert, and there are many of these adverts that happen all over the world. People need work experience. People need to get uh, jobs, and so they go and work for nothing. And there's an advert in the city of London for an unpaid internship as a personal assistant. The job description goes like this for the organization. Action Against Slavery is a charity based in London working to fight issues of human rights. At the moment, we're looking for a personal assistant. And that's all well and good. But isn't the very definition of slavery, you know, unpaid work? I suppose, say we'd be enforced unpaid work. If you volunteer to work for nothing, then it's not slavery. Then you're just a volunteer who works for nothing. But it is quite ironic, is it not? The charity uh, working against slavery is just absolutely priceless. Um, Yeah, working for zero money, a lot of people would see that as slavery. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. Stellan has got many, many wonderful secrets and some very juicy ones that they try to keep locked up in cupboards. But this is one of the good secrets. It's a company called CubeSpace that is manufacturing components that are being used in satellites and a lunar rover. Uh, Mike Alicurney is the chief executive of Cube Space, and you were actually part of the university and got spun out some time ago, Mike. Yeah, I, I Bruce. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, yeah, we, we we spun out about uh, eight eight years ago. Um, we started uh, in the university doing uh, research there. We bought the satellite about ten years ago. I recall the story of building the satellite, and I'm, you're not in the satellite building business, but you are in the business of manufacturing components for satellites. Was that just a uh, was that a, a sort of a, a, an agreement that you came to with uh, with people who pop satellites into the air? How did that evolve into an actual specialization? Uh, so we we actually had an opportunity to build control systems um, as part of a, a big constellation of satellites, uh, international European constellation. Um, and in the process, we got the opportunity to also build one of the satellites for the constellation. Um, so it actually turned out to be a great opportunity for us to get our first components into orbit um, and put ourselves in our customers' shoes um, and kind of... Uh, get a feel for the challenges that they face. Um, and it, it helped us a lot to, to kind of shape our product so that uh, it, it really solves their problem. Uh, at the risk of getting quite technical, and please don't, I mean, what is a control <laughs> system? You're talking about a control system, and I see an Xbox sort of controller. <laughs> <laughs> but these are internal mechanics, is it, to ensure that satellites stay in orbit, stay on track, and um, stay in, you know, sending signals to, uh, back to Earth? Yeah, it's it's basically the, you can call it the autopilot of the satellite. So it's the, the system that measures where the satellite is pointing and then rotates the satellite to point where you want to point it. So, you know, on, on ground, if you drive your car, you've got wheels touching the ground that can steer you. Uh, you can use your... GPS, which going to, which ironically use a satellite, but you can look at where the mountains are and whatever to navigate in space. You look at where the sun is, you look at where the earth is, um, you look at the stars, and from that you you estimate where the, the satellite is is pointing, 
And then you use uh, both uh, reaction wheels, which is basically just a, a big motor with a heavy disk on, and um, electromagnetics to, to rotate the satellite to point where you want to point it. So basically, our, the, the computer of a satellite gives our system a target, a, a ground coordinate, and then our system you know, controls the satellite to point where it needs to point. Uh, so if you're making components, are you actually manufacturing components? Have you got, have you got uh, sort of big machines that make things, or are you sort of importing pieces from all over? Over the world, predominantly China would be my, my guess, and then assembling in South Africa, or are you actually building from scratch and creating all of the bits and pieces yourself? Yes, we, we create most of it. So uh, actual electronic components, uh, you know, integrated circuits and resistors and, you know, the, the, the chips that go inside your cell phone, any electronics, they all come from China or Taiwan or yeah. wherever. So, so we import those. We've got a big warehouse of the stock that we that we need, the, the components that we need. Then we design PC boards, and we have the PC boards manufactured locally. Um, we then solder those boards up here in South Africa. Um, we design the mechanical enclosures for these things. We have them manufactured locally at um, local machine shops. Um, we have them surface treated. We assemble everything in-house. Um, we build the harnesses in-house. We write the software and program the devices in-house. Uh, so yeah, most of it most of it happens in South Africa, apart from the parts that you know only happens uh, abroad. Yeah, I mean, what what gives you the edge? What makes NASA want to outsource all of this work to you, or source these components from you in Stellenbosch? I mean, is it superior mathematical skill? Is it superior manufacturing <laughs> skill? Have you worked out how to do it cheaper than anyone else? Um, well, I think it's. It's a combination of a couple of things. I think, firstly, um, there's a very rich history of research at, at Stellenbosch University yeah. in, in satellites. So, um, you know, satellites are, are, are difficult to do. R it's difficult to do R&D and, and development for satellites because you can only test your device by launching it. And if it fails, then you can't learn anything from it, right? So that's very difficult to do research. And it's expensive to do research. And it's not really viable to do research in a commercial environment from scratch. So the university is a perfect place to do research for this type of um, industry. So there's many years of research at the university um, for the control system led by Professor Armand Stein. Um, so I was also one of his students back in the day. Um, and, you know, a very big knowledge base of, of, of research that we, that we could build on. And then um, we were kind of just at the right time, the industry was really booming. So the satellite industry is just growing massively at the moment, especially the, the fact that it's, it's been privatized and commercialized. Um, it's, it's really growing very rapidly. Um, so having that, that research base, and then uh, I think we've got, a, we've got a really great company culture. So, you know, internal culture in terms of, you know, caring for each other and teamwork and that kind of stuff, but also external in terms of really focusing on, on customer support, um, really focusing on what the customer needs. So we've never been one of those companies that go out and sell what we think people want. We really listen, really shape our products around what our customers want. How many, think, how many, yeah. peop how many people are you employing? Uh, we're currently 50-odd, 55 or something like that, yeah. Uh, it, it must be like the nerdiest building in the whole of Stellar. <laughs> well, I say yeah, that with respect, it's really of course. <laughs> it's actually awesome. We've got, a, we've got a very young team. So, it's, I mean, we've got some, some, um, salt in, so some, some uh, graybeard sprinkled in between, but it's mostly really, really young guys and a great culture. I mean, the people are playing soccer outside you know, every day in... In our new building, we're going to have a nice... So we're moving to a new building in Techno Park, which we're very excited about. Oh, yes. We're, we're going to have a nice uh, coffee bar and a barista and, and uh, foosball tables. And it's, uh, we're really trying to keep it fun. 
Yeah, yeah, but I mean, if you just look at the, the scale of what is happening in satellites, and I saw some stats. You were founded in about 2014, and in that year, there were 241 launches of satellites in the world. This, I think, last year, there were 10 times as many, 2,664 satellites, and that's just adding to all of the satellites already in space, and many of which, of course, are being popped up there by Elon Musk, who's trying to you know, get, his, um, get, get his Wi-Fi, global Wi-Fi working. Yeah, yeah, it's been scaling ridiculously fast, and and there's just been so many companies popping up, um, you know, new new startups and new companies forming, and I think that's really where we shine, our product shine. So the the whole idea of the control systems that we build is we the, the control systems is definitely the most complex part of the satellite, um, and we've done, gone and, and really packaged that control system to a very simple to use plug and play system. So for the guys starting out, um, it's the perfect solution. They just buy this device, plug it into the satellite, and it, and it, and it works. Um, in the past, you know, when NASA built satellite, they had big control system teams um, that would do these things. So uh, it's, it's a nice plug-and-play outdoors device that, people, that, that enables people to get to space a lot quicker. I mean, NASA is a customer, but they're not your only customer. You've actually got hundreds of customers who are using this tech. Yeah, yeah hundreds. Uh, I think it's about 200 customers. Um, so it's, it's, we, we export globally. Um, we've done some, some work for us, not a lot, but um, some very interesting work. Um, and then a lot of commercial guys, so, so people building constellations, um, starting off with one or five satellites and then building towards big constellations like, like Elon Musk is building. Astonishing story, Mike. Thank you for sharing with us. Mike Alec Kearney this evening, the chief executive of a business called Cube Space in Stellenbosch, soon to move to Techno Park, which is just next to the Kleiner-Zalsa wine estate. It's where Capitec's head office is. And increasingly, a bunch of really smart, techie people. It must have, yeah, again, more nerds per square kilometer than any other place in South Africa. What a place. The Money Show. Small business. With Pablo Fatidis. Talking about partners, partnerships, and how to resolve your difference in a partnership. And a partnership, Pablo Fatidis, just help us along, just explain a partnership versus a company versus any other arrangement uh, that you might go into with somebody and start a business with. You know, typically two people come together and they have the attributes of what makes for a good partnership and allows that partnership to be a sailing ship and not a sinking ship. Because many of them do indeed sink if you get it wrong. And generally, these are people who went to school together, went to university together. They very seldom will be people who are absolute strangers to one another. So usually there's a bit of history there, right? Not always, Bruce. You know, it depends on really how the partnership came about. And very often, you're quite right, um, it's people who know each other. And, and that's where they can either go very, very right or very, very wrong. And in fact, just recently, I had a, a really interesting engagement with two partners in a business. They're building a very successful, well, it is a really a successful company, um, which I think might have more nerds per square meter than... <laughs> Um, Sean's business, in fact, it's what they do is they they design and make uh, PC boards. You know, they put together all the anodes and the cathodes and the diodes and the amplifiers and and dampeners, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, to make the PC boards work. Um, 
and and their background, their backstory is really interesting. It was started by the one individual who is 22 years older than the other partner. So he was a fellow who was involved in the industry, saw an opportunity to leave his company, started the business. Um, he was already at that point in his early 40s, so he had a lot of experience behind him. And he needed to find someone who had complementary skills. And that's the first key attribute of a good partnership. He was good on the front end of the business. He needed someone who was good on the operational end, the operational side of the business. So they shook hands. They uh, started in a spare bedroom in one of the homes. And today they've grown into a very, very successful business with a nice office and a big warehouse. And it's, it's worked for 21 years. And today is the 22nd year. And it's not working so well anymore. What? I mean, I could imagine that, you know, people get tired of each other. People, uh, expectations change. People grow at different rates. Things, the, the business world alters and changes. What's gone wrong in the partnership? You know, the, the, three, main, the three main attributes that make for a good partnership. The first is complementary skills, without a doubt. You know, the early example you gave of uh, a couple of people starting off in a partnership because they were best friends at school or best friends at a university or um, really liked each other. Very often, those early stage partnerships make a fundamental error. And the fundamental error is we like each other because we always agree with each other. And like-minded people who have similar skills very often agree with each other. So you might have two individuals that are both market orientated going into a partnership because they have similar views on the market. Those aren't complementary skills. Those are compounding skills. And compounding skills lead to fiefdoms, lead to power struggles, and very often allow the ball of the other end of the business to be dropped. So if it's two market-orientated individuals, well, who's going to be accountable and responsible for operations and delivery or vice versa? The second attribute is that of agendas. Why are we doing this? And in the beginning, it's always easy. We're doing it because we need to make money. And we need to make money because we don't have a line of money coming in. We need economy for our lives, for our lifestyles, call it what you will. And then the third element, which is always a very nebulous but tricky one, is this idea of values, especially the values around money. How are we going to use money? At what point in time are we building a business to generate income? And at what point in time are we building a business to generate wealth? And the problem with values is that values can change over a period of time, which impacts agendas. In other words, why are we doing this? And all of that occurs because if one gets older quicker than the other, or the environment of business changes, or personal circumstances in any one of those relationships change, well, then the agendas change. And when agendas change, and you don't allow a partnership to morph and adapt to accommodate that, you can lose a brilliant, brilliant business where everyone walks out with nothing. So the age difference between these partners clearly has become an obstacle. Their expectations for the business, perhaps their time frames have become an obstacle. And perhaps the, you know, I don't know, the, the innovation rate has changed uh, over time as well. 
Completely. You know, Bruce, one of the most common complaints that I hear between partners is when we started, you know what, we were in the office at 5.30 in the morning, we would finish off at 6.30 at night. Uh, Saturdays, we used to gather and plan the week ahead. And, and that's the way we roll. And that's what got the business out of the starting blocks. But I'll give you a great example. One of the earlier businesses that I acquired, I acquired it from two partners that had a fundamental difference in the value of work. The one individual maintained that work rate. The other individual found himself in an environment where he was in the company of friends who kept on saying to him, you know, at this stage of your career, at this stage of your life, you should be able to take a Friday off and go paddling or go canoeing or go for a bike ride. Uh, there's no reason why you should be having to push as hard as you push in. And in that instance, the one had changed the tempo of their work, the other had not. Age can certainly and often does play a difference over here. But if you can't adjust the partnership to accommodate that, it's the one big area of failure or breakdown that then begins to occur. So how then do you go in effectively, I don't know, as an agony uncle, as a counsellor, as an intermediary? I don't know. Did, did you know what you were getting yourself into, by the way, before the uh, b- b- before you went in the front door? I have no idea. I, I, I thought we were meeting to discuss the company's growth and, and well-being and how to get it to its next level. So I was really intrigued because it's already a successful business. It's a very mature partnership in terms of years. And, and what I realized is when I stepped in, um, it, it, you know, it was like one of these proxy battles. And I was caught right in the middle of these two individuals, uh, both of them putting very, very forceful arguments forward around trying to convince me to side with one or side with the other. And it, it just, it caught me by surprise, Bruce. And, and, and we resolved all the issues and we did it in such an unusual way because by stepping back for a minute, and I can imagine three of us at a table, me at the head where I was placed, one on the other side, one on the facing uh, each other um, in battle. So I stood up and I brought two new chairs to the table and they were both empty. And I said, right. There are now four of us negotiating, or five of us negotiating. And these two looked at me quizzically and said, <laughs> who's going to sit in those two chairs? And I said, the one is going to be called the customer. And the other is going to be called the business. So every time you put a position forward, we are going to evaluate that position, not against your partner's position on it, but rather how will it help and make the customer delighted and excited to remain a customer? And importantly, how will it look after the living, breathing, morphing, changing organism called the business itself? And it was remarkable because in doing that, all of a sudden both realized that they live in service of the business first and the customer second. And it allowed the position of one to be evaluated on a constant basis from a customer and business point of view, and the other to be evaluated on an equal basis 
And through that, Bruce, these two individuals found each other, were able to tolerate the changed agendas and come to an agreement that allowed the one to change their employment arrangement, but remain an investor, in other words, for the health and well-being of the business, and in changing the employment agreement, not compromise the health and well-being of the customer. It immediately acted as almost a third-party, invisible dispute resolution process, where we live in service of the business, not each other in a hot, fiery dispute with passions raging and sense all sense of injustices and indignant arguments being put across the table to each other. But it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, even after more than 20 years working together, and I suppose maybe because of 20 years of working together, you do need an outsider to come and just tell you the truths you know. Uh, but, you know, they, they, they're hard to communicate when there's been something of a, a breakdown in communication. Completely. And, you know, here's the thing. The outsider's voice will always be, if it's against or opposed to my position, then I don't trust it. If it's in favor of my position, I'm going to amplify it. And it doesn't help. When you objectify to the extent that you can objectify and depersonalize these very hot and very often fiery disputes, it immediately brings people right back to the origination behind the business itself. You know, the way to soften both of these individuals up, I paused both of them in the middle of this heated debate. And I said, before we talk to the two empty chairs, gentlemen, remind me again how you started and why you started. And Bruce, very often, when you take people back to the early days of the business, which are often the toughest, it brings up memories of fondness around the trials and tribulations that together they managed to overcome. And often those trials and tribulations were far greater in the past than the one currently sitting on the table, which has just become egocentrized for a want of a better expression. And that one then can be resolved by the two objective empty seats called the customer and the business itself. The Money Show. Investment School. The Money Show brought to you by ABSA CIB, driving action-led insights to create impact when actioned with collaboration through the Insights Series. ABSA is a registered FSP. Welcome to The Money Show this evening. If you've just joined us, I've been promising you all evening that I'll be joined by Bruce Cameron, a long-time personal finance journalist, the man who created personal finance in the once mighty independent group and co-author of The Ultimate Guide to Retirement in South Africa. And tonight, Bruce Cameron, you have suggested to us as part of our investment school that we really get under the skin of the two-pot system when it comes to retirement. Go back, please, to the origins of this two-pot system and what the thinking was in getting us to a point where we are now, where it's about to be implemented in September. Um, yeah, it's quite a long history. The problem with, with retirement in South Africa is that only about 6% of people retire with a, an affordable pension. The rest are way below. And what has happened in the past is Provident Fund members in particular, who are, tend to be lower paid on, on the whole, 
have cashed in their retirement savings, often leaving their jobs to get hold of their retirement savings. And every time they do that, they lower the expectations of retirement. Now, the big thing with low-paid workers is they receive less anyway. So if we talk about a, a replacement ratio, replacement ratio is what you use to find out how much your pension will be. Most retirement funds, after 40 years, and no withdrawals and saving the whole time will give you between 75 and 80%. Sometimes you'll do better, but that's what they expect to give you um, of your final salary. Now, most of the lower paid workers pay less than 50%, often far less if they be cashed in their retirement savings along the way. So none of them could retire. Um, and this is what, what has been the big problem. It's always been said that it's the main reason why people don't retire with enough money is because they withdraw their funds along the way and they don't leave them and they don't get compounded interest. So government and, and the industry have been looking at it and considering what to do about it. And this was aided by COVID-19 because when COVID-19 came in, you had all these people who were underemployed or lost their jobs and needed money urgently. The only place where they had any money was in their retirement savings. Um, and the other big thing is that if they want to, if they said that if you needed access, you didn't want to leave a job to get your hands on the money. So they, just, they proposed this two-part system with a savings scheme and a retirement scheme. With one-third going to your savings schemes and two-thirds to your retirement scheme. Well, that sounds all very good. It sounds like things will work, but yeah. the trouble is that a lot of people are going to find they're going to retire impoverished, um, and they won't have access now to the um, to, to the, the state age uh, state age pension fund or the state grants for old age pensioners um, because they'll retire with money. Um, and what's going to happen with most people? and this applies particularly to lower-paid income workers, is every year they will draw the amount from the savings account and it will go on and on and on every year. So immediately they will lose their one-third of, of by the time they retire. And then they'll get a money that, that's only got a replacement ratio probably around 20 or 25%, I would suggest, um, and no access to the, to the state pension. Um, so you're going to have a lot of impoverished pensioners. Not that people who are on the state pension are better no. <laughs> off. They're not. They, they're, they're badly off. I mean, it's just over 2,000 rand a month. You're not going to survive. But the interesting thing is five and a half people live off that one pension, which, you know, grandchildren, et cetera, all share on that pension. Um so this is not a solution to me. Uh, it, it, it's, it's not an ultimate solution. No. It's, it's, um, not, it's not a solution. It's a populist idea which has been put into law and the, the ship has left the harbour, the train has left the station, the bus has left the depot. It's happening, right? There's no way that yeah. this is going to be reversed. No. Um, I think that what we need is a complete re revision of, of the retirement system in South Africa. And I would suggest that we look at something like the Australian system, where you have um, basically industrialised funds. You have about 13 funds there, which are all broken up into different groups. So you all belong to one or the other. 
Um, and my, the other reason, by the way, that the lower paid people uh, retire on a, on a lower pension is because the insurance costs and the, um, the risk assurance and the costs of administering the fund remain exactly the same. So they pay exactly the same as somebody who's saving the full amount of, of 27.5% of their salary. Um, so there has to be some sort of balancing out between the rich and the poor, much as you have in tax, where the, where the poorer income earners will pay in less and the richer ones will pay in more. Um, and that's what we need to be looking at, something like that. And then by creating these funds, you, you remove a lot of these. You can use the, the, the free enterprise for, for everything underneath, all the services. But the funds should stand alone, be um, controlled by independent trustees and be above it all. And then pick and choose from the service providers below. Um, at the moment, we've got this whole horde of different funds, um, you know, somewhere around 10,000, not sure the actual figure, but somewhere around 10,000 that are active funds. Um, and it's stupid. I mean, okay, we've moved, uh, there's a great move to um, the, the funds provided by the commercial houses like Alexander Forbes and, and the insurance companies, et cetera. But that's not the answer. I mean, a lot of these companies have actually cheated the retirement funds in the past. And I don't have to name them, but there have been many, and many of the private ones have been cheated too by the employers. Um, or they've put up sort of like parking garages and got the retirement fund to pay for them and then paid them minimal rent. There are all sorts of problems with retirement funds. Yeah. The we, union funds are riddled with problems. Yeah, we, we, we run the risk of losing track on the topic. I mean, as fascinating as it is, and you know this industry better than most people, Bruce Cameron, I'm going to pause for a moment and ask you to come back and just explain the, the way in which the two-part system is going to work. I think it's really important that we understand Stand, uh, probably the biggest shift in retirement savings in decades. And, um, you know, it, it is the system with which we are stuck for now. Yes, it needs to change. Yes, it needs to be reformed. But for now, we need to understand what it is with which we are going to be contending from the 1st of September. With Bruce Cameron, who is uh, the co-author of a massively comprehensive book, The Ultimate Guide to Retirement in South Africa. More with Bruce in a moment. The Money Show. Investment School. Before we rejoin Bruce Cameron this evening, um, Nikki Bush reminds us, just a little bit too late, Nikki Bush. Well, I've just seen the post. I don't think it's your fault. Nikki Bush, who is a coach and leads teams and helps teams and helps people work better, she made a, uh, did a post this morning saying, today is the 29th of February. It's the 366th day or leap day in the year. Your yearly salary is based on 365 days in the year. Therefore, we are all working for nothing today. So take it easy. Too late, Nicky Bush. Maybe, maybe I'll take it easy tomorrow. In lieu of today. Put in a form and say, yesterday I worked for free. Today I want to take it easy, please. That's going to land well. Uh, back to Bruce Cameron, the freelance journalist, the consultant on retirement funds. First uh, of September, things change in the world of uh, retirement savings, Bruce Cameron. It doesn't affect anything that we've been investing up until now, I think. It's just on, on new money that goes in from the 1st of September, correct? 
Yes, yeah. And um, people five years from retirement also won't be part of the system as well. Okay. So, um, yeah. So, but also any new savings you've got, one third of your savings from that, from September 1, will go to savings account apart from initial, what they'd be referring to as a, a C capital. That you'll be able to, the, everybody will have a, a new savings account set up from your retirement fund. They'll transfer the lesser of 10% or 30,000 Rand to your savings. That money you'll have access to straight away um, and on an open basis. So if you don't take it this year, you can take it in five years' time if you want it. Um, your savings accounts will be limited to a withdrawal once a year with a minimum withdrawal of 2,000 rand. But you'll be able to withdraw the whole amount if you want to, depending on the emergency. And the emergencies haven't been properly defined yet. That still needs to be done, but it looks like basically the retirement fund will decide on what the emergency is. Um, and that can vary from another COVID-19 right through to sort of you need money to buy school books for your children um, or big medical bills or whatever. So you would, um, you would have to justify why you want to access your own savings and somebody could say no to you if you said, well, I haven't had a holiday in two years and I fancy one because I, I feel like I, I need a rest. For example, uh, the retirement fund may push back against that or not. I think it would probably would, but you would, you know, as with most things like that, you wouldn't go with suddenly excuse to go there and you'd say, lie. no. Yes, you'd uh, yeah, lie. <laughs> I said, I've got to buy school books. Yeah, yeah exactly. quite straightforward. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, yeah, so it's not it's it's a, it's an imperfect system. Is the money that goes into the savings portion going to be invested in the same way um, as the money that goes into the the retirement portion of the of the savings? Each one of the retirement funds will have to make this decision, but I do not see it being anything but cash. So that's the other problem is that you you're going to get a low return on it. absolutely. But I suppose if you belong to a, a, a sort of high earning fund, then they probably won't do that. Um, but I mean, it's going to low. It's going to have a huge effect on retirement savings. It's not a. It's not a. a, a a solution to the problem at all. No. I mean, is so, there a way of opting out of this? Can I say, I actually don't ever want, I don't want to be able to access my retirement funds until the, the I think the age now still is 55. I don't ever, I don't want to be able to a- access my retirement fund until I'm 55. I want to play by the old rules or do we have to now fall into this? You, you have to fall into it without even thinking about it. You know, it's, it's there. Um, I think with um, things like um, a retirement annuity, you could probably say you can choose if you've got the choice of the the like investments, then you can say, well, I don't want them in cash. I want them in equities, Um, you know, and dictate it that way. Um, But I think for most retirement funds, actual that are provided by employers, you're not going to have much choice. And if you're into a life assurance one where they choose the underlying investments, again, they're going to go for cash. Um, so, 
But there, these, um, there, there, there are multiple aspects to this new system, therefore, that are, put you at greater risk in your retirement than you were before. And that first one is that, one, you can access up to a third of your retirement savings, which sit in these savings accounts. But for most people, their money in that one third is going to be invested in an easily accessible liquid investment in the form of cash. And it's fine when, in, when you know, interest rates are at 10%. You, you, you know, you feel like you're growing nicely and that's great. But ultimately, I mean, there's a median at which I suppose interest rates settle, deposit rates, what, 6 7% or thereabouts, which is barely going to cover inflation in real terms. Yeah, no, it probably won't cover inflation from cash. You know, um, cash has not had a very good record in South Africa. Um, you know, the only other alternative is to invest in an income fund. Um, which might provide, which is more likely to provide you than just straight cash. So, uh, why have we allowed a system which ultimately prejudices lower income earners more than higher income earners? Why has this been allowed to go through? Has it just not been properly debated, argued, thought about? Well, you know, t- two people benefit from this more than anybody else. The government benefits because it pays out something like 8 million rand in old age grants to ex-servicemen and people who, who haven't got a pension. So that's a lot of money that gets paid out every, every year. Um, six, uh, six to eight, sorry, about 7 billion rand every year. Um, so now, and there's a huge number of, of, of people on, on state aided grants, something like 9.5 million people. They're not all on old age grants, but they're a huge number. So how do you reduce that? You say to people, okay, well, you must save two-thirds for retirement. Then you won't have as many people in the future applying for old age pensions from the state. Um, But they will still retire poverty-stricken. So whether you're poverty-stricken living off your own money or poverty-stricken living of um, estate money doesn't, doesn't make any difference, but you will still be poverty stricken. So the state benefits because it's, they're going to have less pension than the people to assist in the future. And, and the industry itself is looking at it with, with loving hands <laughs> because they're going to get all this extra money now that's going to stay there um, and they'll manage it all. There'll be extra administration costs and things as people swap between systems. Um, you know, it, I just don't see where the benefit of, of this is. I, I really don't. And the only solution is actually to reconstruct the retirement savings system. And they've got to go for the pillars of, of retirement, helping the people who are at the bottom end, providing assistance for people in the middle end, and then leaving the top end to do their own thing. And that's the thing. I mean, it just it's incredibly frustrating to think that you're going to be regulated into a tougher retirement because of vested interests within government and vested interests within the retirement industry. And it just does feel as if it's time for a, I hate the word revolution, but a revolution in thing or revolutionary thinking and you're saying that the Australian system that you've studied is the most attractive and we should be taking lessons as we have taken lessons in our taxation system and others from the Australians. Yeah, the, we must remember that the Australian system is not hit by the GD coefficient like we are. No, no. Uh, so that, that, that makes a big difference. So we'd have to look at our own circumstances 
a lot more carefully. Um, but it, 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 it won't work with this savings account. And the thing that really irritates me is all the welcome statements that have been put out by the industry. Very few, none, in fact, are, are drawing attention to yes. the problems. You know, they so, just want the hands on the money. Is there anything that we can do then to protect ourselves from being blindsided by this new by this new rule? Not really. Um, and, and the trouble is, the other things that are happening that are also going to make it worse for for pensioners. I mean, just this whole thing of prescribed benefits raising its head again. Oh yes. I mean, you know, they're going to borrow money on the cheap. That's what's going to happen, and that. Prescribed benefits, retirement funds, life insurance funds are going to have to invest in them. I mean, I, I could go over what happened with the, with the apartheid government did the same thing. Um, first of all, they, they did it to, to protect retirement savings against poor investments by the private sector, which were rife at that stage. Um, but then the government also wanted the money, mainly to buy arms to defend the apartheid system. Yeah. Um, and so you were getting less and less money as a result. The worst period was in the 1970s, when large amounts had to be invested in government bonds that severely discounted interest rates. And it was simply the dis- uh, destruction of retirement wealth. That's what it landed up as being. Um, then also, we, I mean, we had the retirement fund taxes that was introduced in South Africa, between, which varied between 25 and 9 percent on income from interest, rental income, and foreign income, and that ran from 1996 to 2007, which reduced the benefits. Um, you've got fiscal drag in every budget, basically, which works in two ways. If you've got Allowances, for instance, the 550,000 lump sum withdrawal from retirement funds hasn't been increased for some time. And then you have bracket creep where you push into a higher margin because of, the, of your increase in the salary. And now they're talking about a wealth tax, which makes it even worse because now your retirement savings could possibly be taxed in every which way possible. It's a triple taxation. Bruce Cameron, thank you. Not everybody's going to agree with your perspective, Bruce Cameron, but I'm grateful for it. Thank you very, very much indeed. The industry, no doubt, will want to push back against it. Uh, Bruce Cameron, who is a freelance journalist, he's a consultant on retirement funds. He has long, he has uh, for a long time rattled the industry cage. I'm getting some messages from people within the uh, retirement industry saying, no, 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 hold on a second. Next week's investment school, producers, is solved. <laughs> we'll get on to that, of course, and put the other side of the argument. Um, and uh, yes, again, just try to get a better understanding of this two-pot retirement system framed by Bruce Cameron as a bleeding disaster waiting to impoverish you. Now, that's his perspective on this. The investment industry will have another one. Let's see who we can find to balance it out.